Good morning, Four Oaks. If we don't know each other, I'm Paul Gilbert, the lead pastor. So glad that you were here in person, online. Hey, um, why don't you open your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be. You know, everybody is focused on December 25th for good reason, but I don't hear many people talking about December 21st. Do you? That's like winter solstice, the shortest day of the year, right? The longest night of the year. And the scientists tell us that we're going to see something we haven't seen this December 21st in 800 years. And I'm not, I'm not talking about the fact that FSU won a football and basketball game on the same day that UF lost a football and basketball game. I am talking about a, a celestial event in the skies, right? For the first time in 800 years, there's going to be a conjunction of, of Jupiter and Saturn where these orbits sort of align and they're going to have the appearance of a dazzling star. Now, of course, something very similar happened 2,000 years ago where there was a conjunction of Jupiter and Venus. And many have hypothesized that, hey, that, that was probably the Christmas star. Uh, I'm not going to go there now except to say um, I think it was probably a comet. And if you want to know why, let's go to the, the Italian steakhouse downtown and I'll tell you all about it. And you're paying, right? But, but here is what I find interesting related to this. When looking at this conjunction of planets, in all seriousness, with the naked eye, it looks like it's just one star. But when you get a telescope and get the detail and zoom in, you realize you're really looking at two different planets. Now, the first is, I mean, just with a casual glance and you see the star with the naked eye, I mean, it's pretty, it's beautiful, unique. But a telescopic view really reveals something spectacular, awe-inspiring, even glorious. And that's what I would compare our study through just these two verses of Galatians is as it relates to the incarnation. We are getting a telescopic view up close and personal of Jesus Christ. And my prayer for us as a church family this season is that we would not merely see Jesus at a glance. That as we're motoring our way through the Advent season and things are happening quickly and the pace is going uber quickly, that, that God would sort of put our souls into park and that we could slow down enough to see and savor Jesus Christ, not with a glance, not with a nod, not with an acknowledgement, but with a, with a clarity, with a depth that will reveal the awesomeness, the depth, the glory, the awe of Jesus. That is what we as the people of God need. And so we're, we're on part three of this five message series on two verses. The first that we talked about, the plan of God, how in the fullness of time, God executed his plan. We looked at last week the preexistence of God, how God sent forth his son. And now this morning we're going to talk about the presence of God, born of a woman, born under the law. Now I'm going to read actually Galatians 4, 1 through 5 to kind of give us a running start and some context. And then we're going to dive in this morning. Hear the reading of God's word. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. 
In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now here are the two verses. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let's pray together. Father, what we're asking this morning for us to get this telescopic view of you, for that to actually permeate our souls, for that to seep into every fiber of our being, Lord, that is something only you can do through the power of your spirit as your word bears witness to our lives. And so we're praying that you would do it. Lord, I pray for every single person here this morning, whether they know it or not, what they most desperately need is clarity of vision, vision of you, not of circumstances, not of cultural realities, not of the stock market. Lord, what we most desperately need to see in all of its glory is you. And so, Father, would you reveal yourself and your son to us now we ask and pray. And it's in your son's name. Amen. You know, last week we talked about why it was so important for Jesus to be God. So today we sort of flip that. We want to talk about why it was so important for the Messiah or for Jesus to actually be a man. You know, offenses against God, against God, can only be remedied by God. That's where we were last week. But offenses committed by man can only be remedied by a man. That's why Messiah, Jesus, had to be both. And we want to really plumb the depths and the time that we have around the humanity of Christ this morning. So we have two points, and here they are. We're going to first talk about Jesus, the human being. And secondly, Jesus, the human representative. Let's look at Jesus, the human being first. You look at verse four, Paul uses this interesting little phrase, born of a woman. Now that may seem like a very obvious thing when we talk about the humanity of Jesus, but but what is Paul really wanting to get at there when he talks about Jesus was born of woman? You know, we have some gospel partners in, our church does, in New Orleans, Urban Impact Ministries under John Gearhart's leadership. And we have been sending teams and students and doing mission trips there for almost literally a quarter of a century. I remember when Susan and I took the first group of high school students to an Urban Impact Ministry uh, mission trip in the summer of 1997. And and we've been doing that ever since. Or um, Student Ministries has kind of taken up that torch now. But I remember a video that they produced that summer. And they basically went around to the neighborhoods and, and interviewed kids or children, students, teenagers, and asked them, what do you want to be when you grow up? What, what, what are you hoping God does in your life? And the answers were precious. They were amazing. I, I want to be a coach. I want to be a band teacher. I want to be a businessman. I want to be a firefighter. You know, the things that you would typically hear. But there was this one little boy named Derek, and he clearly, let's just say this, did not appreciate being asked to be filmed and to tell what he was, what he wanted to be. 
And so they, he had to be conjoled and he had to be prodded. Come on, Derek, what do you want to be? What do you want to be? And finally, sort of disgusted, he looks at the camera and says, when I grow up, I want to be a human being. All right. And Susan and I have laughed about that ever since. But in retrospect, it's actually maybe the best answer that anyone gave on that video. You see, culturally, we are very quick to want to base our identities based upon what particular group we're in. We do this politically, educationally, ethnically, athletically, what class, socioeconomically we're a part of, so much so. I mean, this is, I mean, identity politics is what drives us culturally so much so that it's easy to overlook the one thing that we have in common. See, the most important thing that, that we share as people is our humanity, is the fact that we are, in fact, human beings, as the fact that we are all made in the image of God. And whenever we see civil unrest happening around the country, around the world, we're quick to want to say, who's involved? What groups are going after one another? What is this group protesting? What is that group counter-protesting? We, we, we have a propensity to see everything on a very micro level and according to how we're divided into this group or that group. But I think what Paul is getting at here is that the fundamental thing that Jesus Christ has in common with us is the same thing that we all have in common with one another. And it's the fact that we are humans. We are image bearers. See, the fact that Jesus was a man, that fact that Jesus was a human being, see, this was central to the confession of the early church. In fact, many people believe that what Paul is, is writing here is actually a quote from an ancient confession. So, you know, sometimes as a church family, we'll recite portions of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or a catechism or something like that, and it gives us a sense of, hey, what do we collectively as the people of God affirm to be true about God? Well, in the same way, there's, there's a number of pieces of evidence which indicate that this is the way that these particular verses function. The church would come together, and maybe someone would ask, tell me, what did Jesus do or what did God do with his son? And the, and the church would say, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. It was their central confession from the very earliest days. And in fact, this is such a prominent category of Paul to emphasize to us for us not to lose the, 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 the vision that, if, yes, Jesus, while being 100% God, is no less, in fact, man. In fact, at the end of his ministry, as he is passing the torch to Timothy, listen to what Paul says. Galatians was his first letter that he wrote. In his ministry, 1 Timothy was one of the last letters. He says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, see the emphasis, Jesus Christ. See, the mediator or the go-between between us and God, Paul says, is actually a man himself. He is the man. He is Jesus Christ. And here is what I think is astounding. 
And this is really where I think Paul wants to take us with this phrase this morning. The Gospels make it crystal clear to us that Jesus, this is going to be hard for some of us to wrap our mind around, so just stay with me. The Gospels make it crystal clear that Jesus was no less human than you and I. Now, that may sound blasphemous. That may sound strange. A lot of times we have this sense that Jesus was sort of orbiting in his earthly ministry with this halo around his head or walking three feet off the ground. And there's no question the miraculous did happen, but the whole, the scope of Jesus's life, in fact, was actually very ordinary, very human. I want you just to consider some things. First of all, this, Jesus was born in the regular way with a regular body. Luke 2, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Jesus did not mystically appear, right? He wasn't beamed down. He was actually birthed in the regular human way. God was. Secondly, we know that Jesus grew up and matured in the regular way. Luke 2 again. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus had to learn to do things. He had to learn, I was going to say tie his shoes, boots, sandals, whatever, you get it. He had to learn to brush his teeth. He had to learn to walk. He had to learn to talk. He grew and matured like the rest of us. Third, we know that Jesus was hungry, tired, thirsty, emotional in the regular way. So a couple years ago when we walked through the Gospel of John, we see the humanity of Jesus on full display in that Gospel. When John tells us, for example, that Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus. That fact, Jesus became righteously angry in the temple as he cleared out the money changers. Fourth, and this is so important, Jesus was tempted by sin in the regular way. Listen to this passage from Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, but without sin. And, and, and a lot of times we want to we zone right in on that, but without sin. And that is utterly crucial and important. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But don't lose sight, church, of what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying that just as you and I are tempted towards sin... That word every respect literally means in every time and in every place, Jesus was also tempted. Do you ever walk around just feeling like I'm being bombarded with temptations? Things that I see, things that I think, things that happen to me, things that, that I sort of observe happening around here. Think about for a second about your greatest personal areas of temptation and struggle. What are those for you? Is it anxiety? Is it depression? 
Is it lust? Is it narcissism and wanting to be the center of attention? Is it judgmentalism? Is it covetousness? We need to understand something. Jesus was brought face to face with each of those temptations. And yes, by the grace of God, because he is the son of God, he never sinned. But, but the point here, you need to understand, and I need to understand, Jesus is never obtuse or distant from your struggles. Jesus is not a stranger to your temptations. It's not like Jesus has this sort of academic, theoretical understanding of your struggles. This sort of paternalistic pat you on the head, it's going to be okay. I know you're really wrestling with this, but it's going to be, it's going to get better. No, 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 no. Jesus has been all the way down that road. He has suffered. He got sick. He suffered physically. He suffered emotionally. He suffered spiritually. He was deserted. He was betrayed. He saw loved ones die. He saw people he cared about crippled with disease. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. And for Oaks, one of my prayerful desires for you this season is that you would slow down enough, and I mentioned this at the beginning, slow down enough in this Advent season to walk closely with Jesus. You see, when it says that Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us, that's not merely to be a theological confession for us, although it is absolutely that. But it's also meant to be a personal reality. You see, as, as, as God, Jesus is all-knowing. But as man, Jesus is all-suffering. And so there is an invitation, just like the writer of Hebrews tells us, to draw close to him, to cry to him, to come to him. What does Isaiah tell us? He is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. It's not like Jesus in a snow globe. You just kind of shake it up and look, and it looks inspirational, and it looks pretty. No, no. Jesus came down. He was, as Paul emphasized here, born of woman. So it's utterly crucial in terms of our communion, our spiritual walk, our struggle with temptation, to know that Jesus was a man. And the fact that he was without sin should be an incredible encouragement to us. It should be an incredible example to us because Jesus is not just merely a fellow struggler. He's an older brother. He's been down that road. He, he's, guys, he was tempted beyond anything that we could ever imagine. Satan, we're going to talk about this in a second, said, listen, if you would just cast yourself down, if you would just pick up these stones and, and make them bread, I'll, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And in his humanity, knowing what was before him and the cross and the road to Calvary, oh, what a temptation that might have been just not to have to suffer the wrath 
of his father upon him for the sins of the world. Can you imagine what sort of temptation that was? Can you imagine him in the garden when he says, Lord, please let this cup pass from me? Because that's his humanity. But then we see his relinquishment into the will of the Father, but not my will, but your will. I pray for you, Four Oaks, this season, and for myself, my family, that God, Emmanuel, would be a theological and a functional reality for you in this season, whatever you are walking through. Jesus is acquainted with that in every respect. Now, there's a second reason I think it's important that Messiah be a man. And this goes back to the second phrase that Paul gives us here that we want to unpack. And it's this idea that we need a representative. But not just any representative, we need a human representative. So let's, let's, let's unpack this phrase, born under the law. Now, to understand that, we have to go back, I think, to Genesis 1 and 2. You know, we, we never get away from Genesis, do we? we? We spent like two years in there. We're going back again. But remember for Genesis 1 and 2, Adam was made perfect. And God said, Adam, if you obey me, walk in my ways, I'll have communion and we'll have life together. We'll have uninterrupted fellowship. But, but if you eat of the tree, if you choose your own path, there'll be sin, there'll be separation, brokenness and misery and sin will be introduced into the world. And we know the story oh so well. He failed the test. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden and all of humankind was plunged into sin. And just to give a big exclamation point to all this, God established an angel at the entrance to the garden with a flaming sword just to emphasize once more Man failed the test. But as Adam and Eve are on the way out the back door of the garden, interestingly, in Genesis 3, God gives them a promise. And the promise is simply this. Adam and Eve, I'm, I'm going to go to work to fix what you have broken. Adam, you have failed as my first created. You have, you have chosen your own way. You have taken your own path, but I'm going to raise up another seed. Genesis 3.15 tells us, right? And this is going to be a seed of the woman. It's going to be another man just like you, except this time he is going to crush the head of Satan. He is going to establish his dominion and rule. He's going to right what is wrong. In fact, this is, as Paul would refer to him, kind of a second Adam. He would do what the first Adam failed to do. He would be a faithful human representative. Now, I want you to think for just a minute about how similar the first Adam and the second Adam, Jesus, were in their lives. Just consider this just for a moment. Do you know, both Adam and Jesus were both miraculously created. Now, I'm not to underestimate the miracle that birth is, right? Any birth. Any birth is a supernatural miracle of God. But we're talking about a birth that is not of the usual way of a union with a man and a woman. Adam was formed from the dirt of the ground. Jesus 
and, and we wish we had more detail, but this will simply be enough, was not conceived by a man being with a woman. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was, he was implanted within the womb of Mary. It was miraculous. So both Adam and Jesus had a miraculous birth or creation. Both Adam and Jesus were both created without sin. You see, Adam was created with a nature, yes, that could choose between following God and not following God, but there was no inherent sin, inherited sin. The, the garden was pure. It was noetic. It was, it was a perfect communion between God and man. And of course, Jesus, by virtue of the fact of his virgin birth, he had not inherited a sinful nature from his father or from his parents. Jesus also was made perfect, able to choose to follow God, not, not bound in sin like we are, like we are born as. Here's another area of similarity between Jesus and Adam. Both underwent an extreme time of testing. Remember how Adam was in the garden and, and God said, anything you want, it's all yours. The world is your oyster. Just stay away from that tree. It's, it's not going to be good for you. It's not for your best. You're not going to flourish if you choose your own way. Jesus, in the same way, was tempted by Satan. And Satan said, just, if, if, if you just lay down this silly notion that the Messiah has to die, I will give you the world. I'll spare you of your suffering. Both were tempted to trust themselves. One difference between Adam and Jesus as it relates to their testing. One failed their test, and one withstood the test of the tempter. Jesus Christ obeyed perfectly, not just then, but wait for it, all throughout and repeatedly throughout his life. So when it says that Jesus was born under the law, what, it, what Paul means is that Jesus was born having to obey the law in order to have life. He was born under the, under the curse of the law that if he didn't follow the law, he would face the curse of the law. And, and this is important because understand something, church. The Bible says nothing less than perfect obedience is needed for us to walk before the face of a holy God. Nothing less than perfect righteousness. But Jesus fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law by obeying perfectly. Do you realize that mankind is still wrestling with this? Do you realize that we are still born under the law? All of us, every person who's ever been born in the history of planet Earth is born, is born under the law, meaning... If you obey the law perfectly, you will live. But if you disobey the law, then you will die. You will perish. Church, we have to have a representative, a champion, someone who will act on our behalf, someone who will obey for us, someone who will live a perfect life in our place, who will represent us. And Jesus, and Paul says, this man, this second Adam, it is Jesus Christ. 
That is what he's come to do. That's why he had to be human. And this came, make no mistake, church, at great cost to himself. A passage you're probably familiar with, Philippians 2. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because we said last week that Jesus became a man without ceasing to be who he already was, 100% God. But here, here's the mind-staggering reality of the incarnation of the gospel. While Jesus has been eternally God, he was not eternally God-man. That's why God had to send him forth to become a man. But although he wasn't eternally the God-man, guess what? From henceforth and forevermore throughout all eternity... Jesus will be God, and Jesus will be man. In other words, the form of the servant that Jesus took, he remains a man for the rest of eternity. It's not like he goes back to being this ethereal spirit in heaven. He, is, he continues to be God, but he continues to be man and, and there's a number of places in Scripture we could go to this, but we think about when Jesus was resurrected and he had a physical body. And Jesus tells Thomas, Thomas, just stick your hand, finger in my side and in my hands. We think about John on the island of Patmos. And Jesus appears to him, and he is the risen Son of God. 100% God, but yet... 100% man. I think we get the clearest picture of this reality in Revelation chapter 5. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. In other words, when we are in heaven worshiping God eternally, we are worshiping the God-man. We are worshiping the one who is crucified, who was slain, the one who will have the nail prints in his hands and the spear wound in his side. We, we will be worshiping him in the flesh and blood. And we have to say, well, why is this the case? Why is it the case, Pastor Paul, that, that, that Jesus is going, is going to forevermore be both God and man? And I don't know for sure, but here is, here is just my theory. I think it has some basis here. Think about it for a second, church. The people in your life who have had incredible meaning to you. And, and think about whether it's a, it's, a, it's a parent or a friend. Or maybe some of you have, got a, have had a near-death experience. Someone actually saved your life. 
And think about the many times that you've probably thanked that person. Thank you for what you did. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for investing all that time in me. Thank you, thank you. But think about for a second, every time you would see that person in the future, maybe it's at a family reunion, or maybe you go back to your hometown, or maybe you run across them, that person never ceases being that person to you ever. They're always going to be the, that, that person who just holds special significance in your heart. I was talking the other day to um, my former youth pastor. We haven't seen each other maybe in 25, 30 years. I've written him letters. I've told him before how God has used him amazingly in my life. But what do you think the first thing that I do when I get on the phone and we're talking and I catch up and I say, John, just let me thank you one more time for just believing in me and investing in me and, and, and pouring your life into me. See, he, he forever will hold that place for me in my heart. Every day that we are in heaven for the rest of eternity, Jesus will never cease being the crucified God-man, the lamb who was slain. We will never get past the cross. We, we will never move past seeing Jesus in anything else except our Savior, our Messiah, our lamb that was slain for us. He'll never cease being that. He will always have that nature, that character, and because of that, we will worship him anew, afresh, every single day. It's why getting to know Jesus Christ, the God-man through all eternity, will never grow old. It will never be tiresome. It will just be like scaling one vista of a mountain range after another and getting to the top and realizing, oh, we have so far to go. Church, where in your life this Advent season do you need to be reminded that Jesus was born of a woman just like you? And where in your struggles, in your sin, in your, in your, in your anguish and in your despair, do you need to be reminded that Jesus was born under the law just like you, but yet did for you what you could never do for yourself. He lived a perfect life, fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law, and then said not only that, but I'm going to lay my life down as a sacrifice to you. You know, Advent is, yes, when we remember the first coming of Christ, but Advent is so much more. Advent is us awaiting the second coming of Christ. Because Jesus says, I'm going to come back the way that I left. I'm going to appear on the clouds. I'm going to be the holy, righteous, Daniel 7, son of man. I'm coming to set everything aright. And so as a church, we wait in hope. We light these Advent candles because they're a reminder that Jesus has come once But Jesus is returning again. 
And as we prepare to take the Lord's table to, to celebrate that first coming, to look forward in anticipation to the second, I'm going to ask us to pray and ask God to prepare our hearts as we come to take these elements as we worship the God-man Jesus.